So welcome to my first sermon ever preached into a camera. If this feels like a weird disorienting experience for you, know that it feels like a super weird disorienting experience for me, because truth be told, I never wanted to be an internet preacher. Uh, I have not had secret desires to be on YouTube. My, my kids are the ones who've been clamoring to be YouTubers. I think they're kind of jealous of me right now. But like it or not, here we are, along with other faith communities around the globe right now, entering this brave new world of virtual church, or as one of my clergy friends is calling it, virch. Uh, on the upside, being exclusively online means you get to come to church in your pajamas. No judgment. Cheers to all of you who might be in your pajamas right now. Uh, we can also, in theory, welcome folks from anywhere. So like, hi, mom and dad. Welcome to Haven. Glad to have you here. Now, <laughs> about a month ago, um, I started us on this new teaching series, okay? And I was proposing that we would take this conversation through the season of Lent. Um, and this conversation I was proposing was that we use this season in the church calendar in a unique way by looking at the work of this 20th century Stanford academic named Rene Girard. Specifically, I've been inviting us to consider his sweeping theory on human behavior and also his perspective on Jesus-centered faith. So, so far we've had two teachings in the series. For those of you who are, you know, are new to this conversation and might have missed them, I don't have video, um, but you can find the audio along with my notes on the sermons portion of our website if you wanna check that out and catch up a bit. Um, so if you're new to the conversation, I'm just going to give you a bit of context about who this guy Girard is, why we're talking about him. René Girard grew up in France. He was a student in Paris when it was occupied by the Nazis. Uh, he moved to the United States to teach in university settings after the Second World War. And eventually he ended his long prolific career um, as a professor at Stanford. He was multidisciplinary, studying and writing about literature, anthropology, myth, philosophy, and religion. And though he initially began his career as an atheist, over time, Girard came to a kind of unique Jesus-centered faith uh, because of actually how he saw the stories in the Bible interacting with the way he was coming to understand the world and specifically how humans behave in it. And that brings us to the idea for this series, okay? I'm calling the series Old Stories, New Lenses. And the concept is we're taking this fresh look at these stories from our ancient texts with like a new set of lenses. At least it's new to a lot of us, okay? This fresh perspective of Girard to see these stories maybe in a new way and with that new perspective, maybe unlock some new meaning. So, Girard's work centers around the mean, you could even say violent streak that humans have and how that expresses itself when groups of people get together. For him, that starts with what he would call mimetic desire, okay? This reality that he believes humans are wired to be so profoundly imitative that we don't just mimic one another's behaviors, we mimic each other's emotions. We even mimic each other's desires. Okay, now if you've been following along in this series, 
you, you, we've been thinking about this for a few weeks. Maybe you've been reflecting, like, do I really think that is true? Do I really believe that I buy things because I see someone else buy them? Are we really so essentially persuaded in what we would want and what, how we behave with that desire? And sadly, I would say that though we started this series before this whole pandemic situation blew up, for me, the last couple of weeks have really been a potent example of the kind of mimetic frenzy Girard described playing out in real time. If you don't think you believe me, maybe you haven't been grocery shopping in the last couple of weeks, right? This past Monday, I was already planning on doing the shopping for the family that day. Jason and I put together our list. I was ready to go. And then at one o'clock came the order. The shelter-in-place order was issued. So by 1.30, I could not find parking anywhere in the whole vicinity, like in the neighborhood of Berkeley Bowl West. I drove around several, several times. Finally, I gave up and decided, all right, I'm going to try that bigger target on 40th, see what they have. If they have any parking, I go over there. There is some parking, but I can see that it's quickly filling up. And so I park, I enter the store, and I see all these other furtive customers. They are watching each other's carts. Does that person have something I need to get? Folks try to race ahead of each other to like grab the last loaf of bread, the last box of mac and cheese. And in the hour I was there, the shelves went from partially filled to totally empty. Everyone with that same tense expression on their face, right? It was like in real time, I was watching mimetic desire activated and escalating to envy and rivalry in the same way that Gerard predicted that it would. Now, in our last teaching a few weeks ago, we talked through this process that's really at the heart of Gerard's work, and that's the way communities often respond when they hit a crisis. This is what Gerard calls the scapegoating mechanism, and it's really what he's known for. So let's just review the basics real quick. Uh, I think I have these on the slides, these steps. We're just gonna talk through them real quick. And one moment, Jay, can you close the door? I have a loud teenager who's um, talking very loud with his friends downstairs. <laughs> it's a little distracting. Welcome to Virch. Um, okay, so let's look at this. Let's just review real quick these points from Gerard's. Um, so we have the mimetic, we have the mimetic rivalry at play. And then you get this system of people that becomes stressed and anxious. And the mimetic rivalry hits a fever pitch. And when that happens, violence is usually the human response. But as Gerard points out, rather than just like blow the community to shreds, as everyone gives into their violent tendencies, groups of people tend to channel their aggression and place it on a single victim or maybe a minority group. And that's what you might call a scapegoat. So the victim or minority group is identified. It's usually by something that makes them different, something that makes them other than the majority. And then we have an accusation put on them. And when that happens, it's almost always a false accusation. Often the accusation ends up being more true of the accuser than the person who's being accused. The group becomes rallied together and they point their aggression at this individual or this minority group. 
And then the scapegoat is subjected to violence. They're expelled from the community. They're incarcerated. They're deported. Or in the worst case scenarios, they're killed. And for the moment, the group having united in ridding its community of this thing that the group has decided is really the cause of their problems, the group begins to feel better. A kind of fragile peace descends. A superficial harmony is restored to the community until the system becomes anxious again and another scapegoat is needed. So as a human community, I have to name that we are increasingly finding ourselves in a more grave crisis than perhaps any of us can remember, at least in a long while. We're understandably anxious. Our systems are anxious. Our markets are anxious. Every time we turn on cable news or open up Facebook or Twitter, the memetic anxiety rises as we feed on one another's uncertainty and fear. Now, I'm not saying we're not right to be very, very concerned. And I'm not saying our concern is overblown, but I want to name all of this, to name that we as a community, as a nation, as a global society are so charged right now. This mimetic tendency is so activated that we are like a powder keg ready to blow. This, this moment we are in right now, this is the exact kind of moment Gerard was talking about. We are totally poised for this scapegoating mechanism to play itself out in our midst, and it would not be the first time that that has happened in the midst of a global pandemic. Some of us might remember it all too well, the explosion of the HIV AIDS pandemic in the 80s and 90s. That pandemic was tragically put on the backs of the LGBTQ community as the disease was labeled the gay plague, escalating bigotry, racism, homophobia, and exacerbating the pain that those affected were feeling and disastrously preventing the resources to flow to prevention and treatment costing millions of human lives. But our history of scapegoating during disease outbreaks actually goes back a lot further. Historians tell us there have been conflict and violence against people groups accused of being responsible for disease outbreaks around the globe for millennia. In Renaissance Europe, as syphilis spread across the continent, the British called it the French disease. The French in turn blamed the Italians, the Dutch blamed the Spanish, and the Russians blamed the Poles. And of course, one of the most horrifying and tragic instances of scapegoating in the face of a public health crisis took place during the Black Plague. As innocent Jewish communities throughout Europe were accused of causing this illness that killed so many. And in response to the false accusations that these Jewish community were poisoning European wells, many of them were wiped out at the hands of angry mobs. So what does any of this have to do with Jesus-centered faith? 
for Rene Girard. This scapegoating mechanism has been effective for millennia in human culture because generally people don't understand that they're doing it. The mimetic rivalry is so powerful. The group think in those moments is like so strong that the group really believes its violence is justified. They come to believe that the victim is the problem. They are just executing justice. But Gerard believed that our Bible, from the beginning of Genesis through the stories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, actually revealed the scapegoating mechanism for what it was in a powerful way. He believed these stories helped make it clear what's really going on, and that maybe through them, God is actually weighing in on this whole human tendency we have to scapegoat and offering us another way. So thus far in our series, we have been focusing on stories where we begin to get a hint of how this all works in the Hebrew Bible. But today we're gonna to turn to the New Testament, to the life of Jesus. And there we're gonna look at how he responded to this scapegoating mechanism at play in his day. And as we take this fresh look at an old familiar story, we're gonna keep Gerard's framework in mind and consider how this person whom Christian tradition calls the embodiment of the divine, God incarnate, how he responds to scapegoating playing out. And my hope is that looking to Jesus's response might give us insight and courage about how we also might respond to the moment we're finding ourselves in today. So with all that set up, let's look together at John chapter eight, starting with verse two. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So here we have this famous story. Likely many of us have heard it, but today we're gonna to take a look at it specifically with this Girardian scapegoating lens in mind. But before we get too far into that, I just wanna give us some context for this story. Because at the heart of this encounter, we have a conflict that's taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. You could say it's a mimetic rivalry kind of conflict. 
these teachers of the law, they see Jesus roll into town. They see people flock to him. They see the miracles that he performs that like far surpass anything they know how to do. They feel threatened. They feel rivalrous. They feel the need to challenge, to, to maybe knock him down a peg. And so again and again throughout the Gospels, you see these stories where these other religious leaders are like intent on trying to make Jesus look bad, to trap him in some way. So what's the trap here? Well, the reality is this system Jesus is born into, this is also an anxious system. The Jewish people are an occupied people. The Roman government has taken away some of their, what they would consider their essential rights of self-governance. And while they still have some capacity to practice their Jewish faith, it's always on Rome's terms. And in this case, Rome has actually taken away the people's rights to capital punishment. If they believe that one of their own has done something that requires the ultimate punishment of execution, they don't actually have the freedom to perform that act of justice. Only Rome can do that. But the Torah says what the Torah says. Their ancient laws were written for a people that were not occupied that had their own autonomy. So this provides these leaders an opportunity to put Jesus in a kind of double bind because Jesus is getting notoriety for teaching the Torah with authority, an authority that people are saying totally surpasses the other religious leaders of his day. But how's he gonna weigh in on this? Because if he was a true teacher of the Torah, he should know what the Torah demands of those who commit adultery. Maybe he won't be respected by the people if he comes out as disparaging the Torah. But on the other hand, if he upholds it and he calls upon a kind of illegal mob violence to take place in order to fulfill the scripture, well, he could be labeled a political dissident by the Romans. He could be locked up. He could then be executed by them. So as they bring forward this woman, apparently caught committing adultery, these teachers are not just interested in what to do with her. Their focus is on their rival Jesus. What's he gonna do? And this is where I think we get to the first interesting response of Jesus to this mimetic rivalry and scapegoating taking place around him. And that's this, Jesus resists the mimesis. Jesus resists the mimesis. The first interesting thing Jesus does is to disengage. The emotion is charged. The group of leaders has become an angry mob and an angry mob has a way of sucking everything around it into its orbit. You know this feeling, right? Maybe you're at work. Someone comes charging at you in a rage, hurls an accusation your direction, and all of a sudden you are activated. Your mimetic nature fires. And before you know it, though you were feeling totally calm and collected five minutes ago, now you are yelling and wondering where this rage came from. That is mimesis. Mimesis is powerful. Our mimetic natures are powerful. And that is why Jesus seems to have the wisdom to look away. 
He doesn't allow himself to get sucked into their rivalry. He doesn't let himself absorb the rage that they are pointing at this woman and at him. He sees their angry stares, and rather than let his heart start to race in tandem with theirs, he turns his attention to the ground. He starts doodling in the dirt. Now, readers throughout the ages have wondered what Jesus was writing about as he looked at the ground. Many, many theologians have offered their theories. But I think the fact that the story doesn't tell us, that's meaningful. The point is not what Jesus wrote when he turned his attention elsewhere. The point is that he turned his attention elsewhere. I don't know about you, but the last couple of weeks have been exhausting to my attentiveness. I have found myself in these spirals, getting sucked into reading one story after another, each grimmer than the moment before, right? Each heightening my sense of fear and anger and grief and dread. I can convince myself this is about staying informed. It's my responsibility to understand what's going on, to respond appropriately. I can convince myself as a pastor or as a parent that I carry that need to understand everything so I can know how to you know, advise those within my sphere of influence. And to be clear, there is some truth to this. I think it does serve all of us well for us to be informed. But there are also ways in which if I rely on social media or consuming the news to fulfill my social needs, or to give me a sense of control in this uncontrollable moment, before long, I can find that those things are actually starting to control me. I think it's vital for all of us that we do not spend all day staring at news reports, consuming Twitter rants, feeding off one another's amped up mimetic emotions on Facebook. We need to also make space to disengage to turn our attention elsewhere, to look at the dirt or look at the sky, to take a walk, to listen to birds sing, to have a deep conversation with our roommate or partner or child before us, to have a long, luxurious talk with someone we trust on the phone or on the computer, to play games with our kids, to laugh, to sleep, to kiss, to breathe, to listen to our deep intuition and the whisper of the Holy Spirit. I don't think Jesus's response here is something he could have planned in advance. I think we're seeing him in the moment work out that if he's going to discern the voice of the divine from within, he can't hear it. When he's caught up in others' emotional frenzy and false accusations, he needs to pull away so he can think and feel and listen. And that moment of clarity, as Jesus resists mimesis, that seems to give Jesus what he needs to discern the second important response he has 
to this scapegoating mechanism. And that I would say is this, Jesus turns the focus of the crowd from the scapegoat to the members of the mob themselves. Again, Jesus turns the focus of the crowd from the scapegoat to the members of the mob themselves. No doubt, in their frenzy, these leaders believe this is about the woman, her wrongdoing. How dare she sleep with a man who wasn't her husband? Now, interestingly, the man has not been brought forward, though adultery is by its very definition, an act that requires at least two people. So why are we punishing her alone? Perhaps these men see her brazenness as an affront to their own marriages. If she could do this, if she could forsake her marriage vows for another man, what about their own wives? Maybe they fear the mimetic process playing out in that way. What kind of example is she setting for those women, for their daughters? No, a different kind of example. A punishing example must be made. This is a line that cannot be crossed by women. Thank you, patriarchy. But Jesus sees through their indignation and their false righteousness. He knows this isn't really about the woman at all. Scapegoating is always a projection of our emotion. Our anger, our fear, our violence, our sin onto another. Here, the men claim the violence is justified. She committed this horrible sin. It's her fault. She's to blame for this situation, but Jesus seems to understand it differently. Maybe the woman did sleep with someone she's not married to. That might be the case. That's not really the reason she's here. As I've pointed out, Jewish society had not been stoning people for adultery for a very long time. So why this one woman? Why now? It's certainly not because she's the only one who's doing this, right? No. Jesus understands that this woman's actions are just a pretext for othering her. She's become an outlet of their rage. The reason everyone's here is because of the anxiety, anger, outrage, envy, rivalry that these religious leaders are feeling. They are living as powerless leaders in an occupied time, hamstrung by Roman authorities, and now in rivalry with this charismatic new rabbi named Jesus. They don't acknowledge it. Maybe they don't even see it. But this has nothing to do with the woman everything to do with the people holding the stones. And so Jesus turns the focus on each of them. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. In the last week, we've seen a dangerous escalating of the search for scapegoats in our current global crisis. Our own president has tweeted multiple times calling the disease not COVID-19, not the novel coronavirus, but the Chinese virus. Reportedly, a member of his staff has even taken to calling it horrifically Kung flu. Yet when this world leader is confronted about the dark, racist nature of these names for this pandemic, names that certainly falsely accuse Chinese people of our predicament and endanger Asians around the globe, 
He's nonchalantly responded, it's not racist at all. It comes from China, that's why. Meanwhile, when asked about what role his administration ought to own for the lag in testing, which all experts agree has been a grievous problem that further endangers everyone by not giving us a clear picture of where the disease has been spreading, he claims, I don't take responsibility at all. These two statements together make it clear what's happening. Every time this disease, which be honest, it knows no boundaries, it respects no borders, it has no political affiliations, it is causing severe suffering and death around the globe to all. But we understand what's happening when it is described as coming from them, whoever they are. It's what they have given to us. This language is about channeling our fear and righteous anger at the unnecessary loss of life that is inevitably taking place. And placing that emotion squarely on the shoulders of someone else, anyone else so that those making the accusations don't have to acknowledge their own role that they are actually playing or have played in the disaster. I will focus on your wrongdoing so I don't have to acknowledge my own sin. But as Jesus reminded the scapegoating mob, who among us has not failed? to live into all the divine would have for us. Who among us is without sin? Now, I don't say that to just let everyone off the hook. We need to be able to be clear about when things go off the rails. We can't fix problems we can't speak honestly about. And honesty requires us to call our leadership to account for failing to fulfill the responsibilities that they have been called to and that they vowed to fulfill. But we must also always do this from a place of being willing to acknowledge our own participation in the systems that bring harm, the systems that oppress others, our own comfort in focusing on our private lives on our shelves being stocked and ignoring the needs of the most vulnerable, our own desire to deflect, to blame, to put our fear, emotion, anger, grief on somewhere, on them, on him. We'll put it on him, whoever he may be. There's another subtle point that I think many miss in Jesus's challenge to the mob. But Gerard would say it's really key. And that's the emphasis Jesus makes on the first stone. Jesus could have said, whoever's without sin, go ahead, stoner. But instead he draws their attention to the first stone. Be the first to throw a stone, he says. You see, Gerard says the first stone is the hardest to throw. There's no model for it. There's nothing to copy. You hold a deeper level of responsibility. You who throw that first stone. While all might participate in the collective violence, as the mimetic nature kicks in and folks start to copy one another, the person who begins it 
they carry the most outsized portion of the violence because they set the tone for what is to come. But even as Jesus invites his listeners to examine their own hearts and consider the role they're playing in collective violence, he also is initiating a different kind of mimesis. You see, there is one person there without sin that day, and he doesn't have a stone in his hand. And as they look to him, something clicks one at a time in the hearts and minds of the members of the mob. One at a time, they begin to follow his lead. The elders seem to get it first. One drops a stone, mimicking the unwillingness of Jesus to pick one up. One brave stone drops, and then another, and then another, and another, and they walk away one at a time. The young men are likely the most passionate. <laughs> They're ready to stone either this woman or Jesus, maybe both. <laughs> but as they watch each of their leaders, their rabbis, their fathers, their uncles, put down their stones and walk away, they too follow suit, even if they don't understand why. You see, mimesis doesn't always have to be destructive. Remember, we are wired to imitate. It is how we're made to be as humans. We can imitate unto violence, but we can also imitate unto life. And I believe we've seen examples of that in recent days too. Neighbors putting notes in their windows to encourage folks who walk by people giving thousands of dollars to aid those who are out of work. Throughout Europe, in Italy, in Spain, in France, and other countries, a movement has grown for the communities to express a minute of gratitude each day for their healthcare workers. So at 8 p.m. every day, residents sheltering at home like us open their windows and they go onto their porches and they bang their pots and pans and they clap their hands and they sing and they cheer as a way of saying thank you to the overtired and often very underappreciated folks who are on the front lines of this pandemic. This movement Encouraging those who need our encouragement right now. That is a result of positive mimesis. What kind of positive mimesis might we be called to in this moment? If we are to model Jesus now, if we are to fix our mimetic nature on him, what kind of actions might that bring us to? What might it invite our whole community into? Finally, there's one more very important response of Jesus to this scapegoating mechanism that we see at play here. And that's the last verses of the story when the mob is dispersed. And it's this, Jesus grants compassion, dignity, and freedom to the scapegoat. Jesus grants compassion, dignity, and freedom to the scapegoat. Finally here, Jesus can turn his attention to this poor woman. 
and make it clear that even if we don't have her name, he sees her. He honors her. He's not there to pat himself on the back for rescuing her. He does not have a male savior complex. Rather, instead of deflecting blame, Jesus actually kind of deflects credit here in this humble way. He's asking her, you know, has anyone condemned you? Oh, well, then maybe I won't either, right? He makes it sound like he's following the lead of others, not to condemn her, as if he hadn't been the model for the compassion she experienced. But in this exchange, we see Jesus stands with this woman. He will not participate in scapegoating. And even when we know, when he knows that she has brought the pain of unfaithfulness into her relationships, which is certainly costly, he knows that this does not disqualify her from her, the dignity of her humanity. Here he stands, the only one without sin, worthy of exacting judgment. And yet Jesus makes it clear, he will not condemn her. Instead, his love and compassion open the way to the gift of grace. And rather than judgment, he gives her freedom to heal, to grow, to learn, and to live in a new way. Friends, I have a feeling we're just at the beginning of deflection and blame being placed on others. I predict that as these things usually go, the blame will generally fall on those with the least amount of power. So yes, there will be blame on those of Asian descent, blame on those parents who aren't able to homeschool their kids right now, Blame on those grocery workers for not being sanitary enough, for not keeping their shelves better stocked. Blame on the uninsured. Blame on the healthcare workers who don't have masks to wear. Blame on the testing facilities who run out of tests to give. Blame on the undocumented mother who fears that if she goes for a test, she'll be turned over to immigration, leaving her children parentless and possibly ill themselves. As followers of Jesus, we are called in this moment to follow a different kind of model. We are invited to turn our attention away from the sources of mimetic frenzy that call us to scapegoat the innocent others. We are invited to examine our own hearts, our own frustrations, our own anger, sin, even as we speak truthfully about the ways our systems are failing us and particularly failing the most vulnerable among us. And we are called to see all of those struggling among us as full human beings, worthy of dignity and respect. We are called to stand with those who are receiving the blame of our community's anxiety. We can share our masks if we have them. We can check in on friends who work in the healthcare industry or in local government and ask them what they need as they're being pushed to the max. We can advocate for the uninsured and the undocumented. We can pray for Jesus's loving, compassionate presence to accompany all who are bereft and afraid. And when we find ourselves 
scapegoated. We can invite the Holy Spirit to help us experience Jesus's closeness, standing with us, seeing us fully as we are, and reminding us that in the eyes of the divine, we will never be condemned. Amen. Amen. Now, before we transition into our time of conversation together, I want to take some time for us to practice one of the things I was just naming. And that's making space to examine our own hearts. Okay, I want to make space for, for a few minutes for us to sit with one another and invite God's presence to be with us as we attend to our own emotions. If we don't want to project our emotion onto others, if we don't want our emotions to be weaponized into scapegoating, then we need to find ways to notice what we're feeling and consider how we can express and release those feelings in healthy ways that don't harm others or ourselves. I'm gonna invite us just to sit for a minute with a few different emotions to invite the spirit to sit with us and to pay attention to what comes up. I'd encourage you baby to grab a piece of paper, a pen, write down whatever you notice you need to pay more attention to. And then maybe later today, as a continuation of this practice, I encourage you to take some more extended time to find a deeper way to feel and express the emotions that come up. Write it down. Create something if you're creative. Draw, paint, sing. Whatever you need to do to let yourself feel it and let it come through you. So with that, I'm just gonna invite you to take a moment to find a, a quiet uh, posture that allows you to kind of meditate a moment. You can close your eyes if you want, take a few deep breaths. And we invite the Spirit's presence to be with us. Jesus, we invite you to be with us. That compassionate presence as you were with the woman in this story. We ask that you'd be with each of us with your capacity to attend to your own emotion and not get sucked in to others. We invite that same empowerment to do the same right now. And from that place, I'm gonna invite you to consider what in this moment you're feeling sad about. Where are you feeling disappointed? What events have been canceled that you don't want to think about because it's just too disappointing? What trips were you hoping to take? What events for your kids aren't going to happen anymore? What people do you miss seeing in person? We're just going to take about a minute to attend to those things and let ourselves acknowledge them.
Okay. Now I'm going to invite you to pay attention to what you're feeling angry about. What is frustrating you? What is under your skin right now? If you let yourself acknowledge it, where are you angry? Okay, I'm gonna invite you now to consider what you're feeling afraid of, what's scaring you right now. Where do you feel fear taking place? What are you maybe concerned about losing? Finally, I'm gonna ask you to consider this. What does your heart need to hear right now? If Jesus was standing next to you, in the same way that he turned to that woman, what words of encouragement and compassion might he speak to you? What are the words your heart needs to hear. Maybe we name those to Jesus and invite that him to speak them back to us now. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you have a different way of engaging 
of not being sucked in to mimetic emotion, but of allowing our mimetic nature to bring good, to bring life. May we experience your compassion for each of us. And may we sense your invitation to live that positive mimesis that brings life and hope and joy to ourselves, to our families, and to all we have even only virtual contact with. Amen.